0: On uh, May 10th, just as the blitzkrieg by the Germans opened in France, Winston Churchill was chosen to be prime minister by the King of England. Um, But he had an immediate problem, and that was how to take hold of power in a ministerial form of government. He was prime minister, he's not president. So he would be, he would remain in office only so long as his peers in the cabinet, and in parliament agreed to that. He'd have to really lead rather than command. Uh, The Latin expression is primus inter pares, first amongst equals. Um, There was a lot of um, resistance to Churchill. Um, many, Many were very hostile to him, and that included the king, Lord Halifax, who was the foreign minister, and many that had supported Chamberlain during the uh, policy of appeasement in the 1930s. Um, If you look at this picture, he looks a little mad there. This was taken in 1929. And uh, these people recalled Churchill's eccentricities, his foibles, and his failures. He deserted the Tory party just before World War I. He was responsible for the debacle at the Dardanelles. And he supported Edward VIII in the abdication struggle far beyond any reasonable uh, amount. As a matter of fact, the head of the BBC wrote in his diary the day after Churchill became prime minister, heaven help us. The first time, this is the cabinet, the first time Churchill walked into into parliament as prime minister, he was met with complete silence, Not not a single clap from the conservative party. Then when Chamberlain came in, they rose and cheered him robustly, showing that the allegiance of the party was still to the former Prime Minister, Chamberlain, rather than to Churchill. Well Churchill reacted to this very aggressively. He was aggressive by nature, of course, and he told the party whip that if such a thing happened again, Churchill would force an election on the country. And given the failures of the Tory party, up till this point it would have been a disaster for them so that's what we call hardball Churchill wasn't fooling around Um, two and a half weeks after Churchill took office the Germans had reached the English Channel and the evacuation of Dunkirk began that same day Churchill declared to the cabinet under no condition would we contemplate any course except fighting to the finish The Foreign Minister Halifax thought Churchill was talking the most frightful rot and suggested Britain should see what terms the Germans would offer in order to avoid what he termed an avoidable disaster. He even pointed out, Halifax even pointed out, that earlier Churchill had said, himself had said, that peace might be possible if the Germans offered reasonable terms. In late June, uh, a gentleman named Rab Butler, who was Halifax's undersecretary at the Foreign Office approached the Swedish foreign minister, I should say the Swedish ambassador in London, and said that they would like to start some talks with the Germans to see what terms the Germans might offer. This was completely without Churchill's knowledge, and he went to Halifax and said if this continued another moment, Halifax would be fired, Churchill would get someone else to do it the foreign minister said, oh, it was all just a misunderstanding. Now, a source of Churchill's great uh, authority was also his wonderful speeches. For Churchill, this is a real source of support and power and another means that he had of gathering the country behind him. Uh, The German philosopher Clausewitz talks about how important it is for the commander to clearly communicate his objectives to those who he commands. So Churchill, as Prime Minister, needed to communicate, really to all of England, what his intentions were. In his first speech to Parliament on May 13th, he said, you ask what is our policy? It is to wage war by sea, by land, and air. With all our might and all the strength God can give us to wage war, that is our policy. And as we shall see today, that's exactly what he did. Dunkirk, um, when the operation began, uh, the English hoped to rescue 50,000 men. And the miracle at Dunkirk turned out that 338,000 were brought off the beaches safely. That was a miracle. But as Churchill said, wars are not won by retreats. And not only was it a miracle, it was a disaster as well. They brought back only 22 armored vehicles. 2,500 of 2,800 artillery pieces were abandoned, 64,000 vehicles were abandoned, 475 tanks, 8,000 Bren guns, that's a light machine gun, 90,000 rifles, and 7,000 tons of ammunition. That's what the English left in France. So they saved the army, but it was a disarmed army, if you will. On June 10th, the French government abandoned Paris for a new capital at Bordeaux. Churchill made several trips to France and sent a number of his senior political people and military envoys to encourage the French to fight on, either in France, in other words, to continue uh, the struggle in France, or else to go in uh, and form a government in exile. Meanwhile, 100,000 Englishmen continued to fight alongside the French army. But the government couldn't stay. The government of Paul Renault, which had begun the war in France, fell. And Renault was replaced as Prime Minister by this gentleman, Marshal Philippe Pétain, who was the former uh, hero of the Battle of Verdun in World War I. And he came, he came to office with the intent of making peace with the Germans. Um, now France, earlier, had signed a treaty with the English where both parties agreed they would not make a separate peace. They would either negotiate together, they would fight together, and that would be uh, an, a, an alliance for all time, or for the duration of the war, I should say. Um, the British ambassador to France, Sir Ronald, Sir Ronald Campbell, told the French that if their fleet sailed to English ports, then the English would endorse this opening of negotiations with the Germans, but they insisted that the fleet sail. Now, the next day um, there was confusion in messages and Campbell told the French that that message was no longer valid. And there's now, as so often happens in history, there's arguments about who said what, when to the French, and what did they mean, and how was it taken, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. From my perspective, that doesn't really make very much difference. This was the English intent. They felt they had a solemn treaty with the French. The French were abrogating it. They were ignoring it. And the English felt betrayed. By the way, in terms of betrayal, it was somewhat mutual because the French felt that the English had betrayed them by withdrawing at Dunkirk without even asking uh, please. Now Admiral Jean Darlan who's the gentleman in naval uniform in this photograph was commander of the French Navy and on June 11th he told the English that if France surrendered he would sail the French fleet to English ports and continue to fight. In other words he would ignore such an order. Um, Now Churchill later wrote that if Darlan had done this he would have been the leader of the uh, French liberation movement, a hero, and would have returned to France in triumph with the allies. De Gaulle was nothing, had no power whatsoever comparable to Darlan. However, uh, Darlan thought better of this statement when he became Minister of Marine In other words, a cabinet position rather than just head of the navy. And then he told the British ambassador, as long as I can issue orders, you have nothing to fear. But there wasn't any mention of sailing to English ports anymore. Now, at the time, Darlan, I believe Darlan was sincere um, regarding what what he would do with the fleet. He sent a message out that went as follows. Whatever developments ensue, the Navy can rest assured that in no circumstances will the fleet be surrendered intact. Any instructions on this subject will only be authentic if bearing the signature Xavier 377, otherwise they are not valid." So he was telling the fleet, don't believe anything you hear from anyone else, don't even believe it if you hear it from me, unless it's signed with this code uh, expression. And the English were aware of this message, but in garbled form. At midnight on June 24th, the armistice between Germany and France came into effect, and all French, all the French ships that could sail from the ports in northern France that were going to come under German control, the ships that couldn't sail were scuttled, and a certain amount of dun- damage was done to the um, port facilities there. The new battleships Richelieu and Jean Bart, which were not ready for battle but were amongst the most powerful in the world when they they would be made ready, sailed for Dakar in French West Africa and Casablanca respectively. Now, um, so no ships remained intact in the Atlantic ports taken over by the Germans and the French intended to keep their fleet out of German hands at least at this time. It's unclear how much how aware the English were of all these things at the time. They were aware, however, of what the armistice said, and the pertinent part of the armistice said this. This is Article 8. The French fleet will be concentrated in ports to be determined and would be demobilized and disarmed under the supervision of Germany or Italy. The peacetime home bases of these vessels will be used to designate these ports. In other words, they would have to return to France. These ships that had sailed to uh, North Africa would have to return to France. The German government solemnly declares it has no intention of using, during the war for its own purposes, the French fleet stationed in ports under German supervision. Now control of the sea was a matter of tremendous historic importance to England. imbued with the traditions from the Armada to Trafalgar and beyond. With France gone, German landings were expected momentarily, and the Royal Navy was the first line of defense, as it had been so often before. The strategically critical theater would become the narrow seas between England and the continent, where the Royal Navy had to be concentrated. They had to put the greatest number of ships in those waters because that was the defense. If the Germans could get across and make a a landing in England, then the disarmed English army would not be very effective in fighting them. Churchill, who'd twice been first Lord of the Admiralty and was a great student of history, was very focused on this problem. And this is what he wrote. In a matter so vital to the safety of the whole British Empire, we could not afford to rely on the word of Admiral Darlan. However good his intentions might be, he might be forced to resign and his place taken by another, who would not shrink from betraying us. Unlike the army, the French army, the fleet was intact, it was loyal, and it would obey the orders that were given to it. As for Darlan, they viewed him as secretive and surly, but with a clear mind. He loved the French Navy with a father's passion and he abhorred the idea that it would come under either British or German control. He was also an Anglophobe. Now the day after the Armistice was signed, tensions at the Admiralty in London skyrocketed when the Richelieu sailed from Dakar. What was she doing at sea? No one knew. the carrier Hermes, the seaplane tender Albatross, and the cruiser Dorsetshire were sent to Hunter, and the Admiralty told, her, told them to capture the Richelieu and use whatever force was required. However, she turned back the next day to Descartes, to Dakar, and before the British could get to grips with her. But this sort of clarified thinking, strategic thinking, amongst the English. At the War Cabinet meeting the following day, Churchill forcefully raised the issue of what was to be done in view of the dreadful prospect of ships like this coming under German control. Now Churchill was the last paladin of British Empire. This is him in his uh, Hussars uniform from uh, just before the beginning of the 20th century. The Mediterranean was the great imperial highway and it was going to be the epicenter of the war effort where British determination and valor were shown to friend and foe alike. It was to be defended, the Middle East possessions in the Mediterranean were to be defended even before Singapore, the great fortress in the Far East. And so that's what they did. They starved Singapore for resources and sent them them to the Mediterranean. Um, It's no surprise that Churchill turned, and I quote, puce with rage when someone suggested to him that the cost of defending Egypt was more than it was worth. Now, in the Mediterranean, the French had a very powerful force known as the Force de Raid, and you have to forgive my uh, lack of a decent French accent on that, This force was located at Merz-el-Kabir, which is the port of Oran in Algiers. It was built around two modern battleships, Strasbourg and Dunkirk. There are two older battleships and a number of other uh, vessels in port with them. If this fleet joined with the Italian fleet, then control of the western Mediterranean would be lost. Alexandria the great port where the Mediterranean fleet was located would be cut off from the West and Malta was would be untenable simply to contain such a joint force of the Italian and French Navy the Royal Navy would have to reduce its ships in home waters and reinforce Gibraltar even so they probably couldn't regain control of the Western Mediterranean they would just hope to hold the French and Italian ships inside the Mediterranean to keep them from getting out into the Atlantic. The official history puts it this way, the British government distrusted the new rulers of France, they feared German duplicity and German resourcefulness, and they believed the whole strength of the Royal Navy might very soon be needed to repel invasion. How could the cabinet be satisfied that some French government dominated by such men as Laval, would not issue orders which French officers with their deep respect for legal authority would feel bound to obey. Or the Germans, who had swooped on Oslo and Narvik and the bridges of Holland, might not bring off a similar daring and treacherous coup against the French in North Africa. Any concession made by the Germans were of minor importance. The cabinet did not consider the intentions and probably would not have considered the orders of the French sufficient insurance against so extreme a risk. Admiral Sir Dudley Pound, who was the first sea lord, originally thought that Darlan's assurances uh, about not l- allowing the French ships to come under German control were sufficient and opposed any attack on the French fleet. But after the incidents of the Richelieu sailing from Dakar, he said, the one action we had in view was winning the war. All trivialities, such as questions of friendship, must be swept away. Now, there's a momentum in both politics and war, and it's got to be exploited when it's available. Urgency was in the air, led by the prime minister, who was always impatient for action. He had a stamp he liked to put on memos that came across his desk. Action this day. The War Cabinet decided El Kabir would be put under the gun. An ultimatum delivered, and if, the Royal, and if rejected, the Royal Navy would open fire on their recent comrades. Additionally, French shipping in English ports and their cruiser force in Alexandria would be seized at the same time. The date was set for July 3rd. Forty-three-year-old Vice Admiral Sir James Somerville, who'd recently been second-in-command of the Dunkirk evacuation, was ordered to take over Force H at Gibraltar and execute this plan. Now, the gist of the ultimatum that he was to give the French there goes as follows. Britain only agreed to allow France to open talks for a separate peace in violation of their agreement if the French fleet went to British ports. It is impossible for us your comrades up to now, to allow your fine ships to fall into enemy hands. We're determined to fight on until the end. Your alternatives are sail with us and continue to fight for victory against the Germans and Italians. Sail to a British port and the crews will be repatriated. Sail to a French port in the West West Indies to have your ships demilitarized and remain there till the end of the war. If you refuse these fair offers, I must, with profound regret, require you to sink your ships within six hours. Finally, failing the above, I have orders to use whatever force may be necessary to prevent your ships falling into German hands. On June 30th, Somerville, by then at Gibraltar, held a council of war uh, aboard his flagship, HMS Hood, in Gibraltar. The senior officers present there were uniformly opposed to the operation. Captain Holland, who had commanded the aircraft carrier Ark Royal, had been the naval attaché in Paris before the war, and he thought Darlan was a fighting man with character, determination, and energy. He was sure Darlan would not allow the fleet to fall into German hands. Somerville told London about this and reluctantly planned that he would fire a round or two to show that we were in earnest, and if this failed to bring acceptance of our terms, a limited period of gum gunfire and or bombing would be used to cause evacuation of the ships and final sinking being done by torpedo bombers or demolition according to circumstances. This was hardly the blood and guts plan that Churchill had expected Uh, and it caused a great deal of concern at the Admiralty and with uh, the Prime Minister over how committed Somerville really was to his mission. On a similar vein, <coughs> Admiral Sir Andrew Cunningham, the, general, the gentleman in naval uniform here, <coughs> commanded the uh, Mediterranean fleet at Alexandria, and he had orders to seize those French ships that were there. Tied up. They were tied up uh, alongside his much more powerful force. He was on a longer tether than Somerville and a much more senior officer, and he also had the strength of will to oppose the Prime Minister, which was no small feat. He wired the Admiralty that he most strongly opposed the forcible seizure of ships in Alexandria. He could not see what benefit is to be derived from it, and he was equally opposed to the use of force at Iran. He succeeded in disarming the French through tact and diplomacy, reinforced by the overwhelming force at his disposal. On July 2nd, Force H, which consisted of the aircraft carrier Ark Royal, the battlecruiser Hood, and two battleships, Valiant and Resolution, sailed from Gibraltar as the sun was going down. Now, gone were the days when Admiral Nelson sailed 8,000 miles across the Atlantic without any instructions from higher authority. Somerville was under Admiralty orders, so Pound, and thus the Prime Minister, had direct contact with him from London and they made use of that. Churchill made sure there was no doubt what was expected, and just before 11 p.m. he sent this message. You are charged with one of the most disagreeable and difficult tasks that a British admiral has ever been faced with, but we rely on you to carry it out relentlessly. A further message was sent just after midnight that he should complete his mission before nightfall. Churchill was absolutely ruthless in doing what he believed needed to be done and he would not tolerate any reluctance from Somerville or anybody else. Perhaps you can understand some of this reluctance if I tell you that these ships in Force H had been sailing in company with the French ships that they were going to attack mere weeks before in the North Atlantic patrol against German raiders. So this was not some abstract mission to them, these were the comrades that they had shared liberty with, if you will. As the sun came up at 0545 on July 3rd, the destroyer Foxhound arrived off the harbor of Mirzal-Kabir and requested permission to enter the harbor. Captain Holland, the commanding officer of Ark Royal, who had been the naval attache, in France uh, was aboard, and he wanted to personally deliver that ultimatum to the French uh, commander, Admiral Marcel Gensu. He waited over two hours and finally the Admiral's barge arrived, carrying, but it, Gensu wasn't aboard, just his flag lieutenant. <coughs> the Admiral refused to see Captain Holland, so his aide carried the written ultimatum back to the flagship. Time passed, and remember, Somerville has been told that he's got to get this thing done before the sun goes down. About 1,200, Somerville signaled London that he'd wait until 1,500 before opening fire, but he did send swordfish from the Ark Royal, swordfish airplanes from the Ark Royal, to mine the entrance to the harbor. London said that if the French attempted to leave harbor, he should open fire. Jensou finally agreed to meet Holland on his flagship, Dunkirk, and Holland got aboard at 1615. But the Admiral played for time, having told Darlan what was going on and been told every available ship was being sent to his aid. That message was intercepted by the British, and they told Somerville, settle this matter quickly. Time was up. At 1715, Somerville signaled the French he would open fire in 15 minutes if they did not accept terms. Holland departed Dunkirk, and Foxhound cleared the harbor at 1755, leaving more mines in her wake. Hood opened fire right after that, and quickly followed by the other two battleships. And over the next nine minutes, I did some mathematics on this, uh, the 24 15-inch guns, of the three battleships would have been able to fire 430-odd shells, each of which weighed 1,900 pounds and traveled at a velocity nearly 2,500 feet per second. Despite the notorious lack of accuracy from British uh, gunfire, the results were devastating. The Britan, one of the older battleships, was hit with a second salvo from the hood and blew up. It enveloped the harbor in smoke, and a thick mushroom cloud arose to a great height. Twenty minutes after Hood opened fire, the Bretagne turned turtle and went down. That's her capsized. Dunkirk was hit by another 15-inch round and struck a mine getting underway, grounding by the bow. The other old battleship, Provence, got underway and was immediately hit by a 15-inch shell, which set off some serious fires and flooded her, forcing her to beach as well. Somerville ordered a ceasefire at 1804, having fired for about nine minutes, to allow the French to evacuate their ships. So he did what he said he would do, give them time to evacuate, but he didn't have any intention of such an intense bombardment as was conducted after Churchill's insistence. With the air filled with smoke from the gunfire and the explosions that they produced, the battlefield field was obscured, and in the confusion, Strasbourg, the other modern battle cruiser, and five destroyers got underway and headed east along the coast. This was reported to Somerville at 1812 by Swordfish from the Ark Royal, but he ignored it because he'd had earlier false reports that ships were underway, and he thought the French would abandon their ships, as he expected, uh, due to the bombardment. When the report was confirmed 10 minutes later, he set sail in pursuit and worked up to 25 knots. That's Strasbourg firing on the English. As, as uh, Somerville and Hood came up to speed and started to close the range, five French destroyers turned and made a torpedo attack against Hood forcing her to turn aside. Six swordfish from the Ark Royal attacked just before uh, nine o'clock but missed it and Strasbourg escaped into the dark. That ended the fighting for the moment but Churchill was inexorable about this and he insisted that swordfish from Ark Royal attack again and hit the disabled Dunkirk so that she would be thoroughly disabled. This they did three days later, and this was the result. The mass that you see here is from a uh, patrol craft known as the, that was called the Terre Neuve, and when she sank her depth charges went, went off and that blew this hole in the side of the Dunkirk. In addition, Churchill also sent swordfish from the Hermes to attack Richelieu and Dakar, and they hit her as well. She remained there for a year with the yard work that was necessary to get her ready for sea again. Well, the battle was over, and the carnage was done. Nearly 1,300 Frenchmen were killed, 1,000 on the Bretagne alone. But Churchill won the fruits of victory, and they were quite important indeed. To begin with it cemented his control of Parliament. He said in in a speech to the House of Commons the next day, this is no time for doubt or weakness. It is the supreme hour to which we have been called. We shall prosecute the war with the utmost vigor by all means that are open to us until the righteous purposes for which we entered upon have been fulfilled. The Prime Minister sat down to thunderous applause. He had now won the conservative party and had the reins of power firmly in his hands. But Churchill won a greater victory than that. And that was the foreign reaction to the attack. And in particular, the reaction of this man, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Now Churchill had been engaged in the diplomatic seduction of Roosevelt even before he became prime minister. And although Roosevelt was inclined to support England, he had his own political problems. He was about to announce his candidacy for an unprecedented third term. There were millions of prominent and ordinary Americans, from Charles Lindbergh to the man on the street, who were convinced isolationists. And even those that thought America should support the allies thought it should strictly be economic support. We should not get, by any means, into a shooting war over this. Churchill very coolly instructed the ambassador, his ambassador in Washington on June 28th, just a few days before the attack at mers El Kabir as follows. Too much attention should not be paid to Eddie's of US opinion. Only force of events can govern them. Until April, the USA was sure the Allies would win, and so were complacent. Now they were convinced England was doomed. What really matters is whether Hitler is master of Britain in three months or not. I think not. But this is a matter which cannot be argued beforehand. Your mood should be bland and phlegmatic. No one is downhearted here. Well, how right Churchill was. That same month, Roosevelt's chief advisers told him Britain would soon suffer the same fate as France. The pro-appeasement ambassador to England, Joseph Kennedy, claimed Britain had little chance against the Nazis, and we'd either throw Churchill out and make terms or else fall to the invincible Nazi war machine. Roosevelt's military advisers urged him to cut off all war supplies to England and save them for our own use, which they feared would be required very soon. Well, like Churchill, FDR was a Navy man. He'd been Under Secretary of the Navy during World War I. If the Nazis got control of the British fleet, Then along with the German, French, Italian, and Japanese navies, the threat to America could be mortal. In an ironic echo of English demands on the French, Roosevelt urged Churchill to send the Royal Navy to Canada if Britain were about to fall. Hmm. Churchill coolly replied, obviously I cannot bind a future government which, if we were deserted by the United States and beaten down here might very easily be a kind of quizzling affair ready to accept German overlordship and protection. And if this country was left by the United States to its fate, no one would have the right to blame those responsible if they made the best terms they could for the surviving inhabitants. My successes who in utter despair and helplessness might well have to accommodate themselves to the German will." Well, the attack on Meuse el-Kabir, proved English determination to FDR that the English would fight as ruthlessly in defense of their interest as their enemies did. Roosevelt's very close advisor, Harry Hopkins, said it persuaded the, the President that Britain would stay the fight alone if necessary for years. FDR then began to engineer aid for Britain and soon produced the substantial results of the destroyers-for-bases deal, lend-lease, and the mutual strategy for for prosecuting the war that brought forth the Atlantic Charter at Argentia in August of 1941. So it was Churchill's ruthless Clausewitzian focus on his objective, on his, his will to fight, his will to continue the war against anyone that brought forth the grand alliance and led to victory in World War II. That's all I have to say. I guess this is a a short talk, but I'll be happy to take questions.